Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in Dapper Dan Gavostin, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, and, well, not the giant size, but uh, the annuals, they count. Okay, and I'm the mischievous Mark Giannacchio. I, too, own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man and the giant sizes, and I, I guess I got to get those new giant sizes, because if I own the old giant sizes, then I'm going to say they count, so we got to make them all count, but the annuals don't count. You got that? We, you follow my through line here, Dan? I got it. I feel like, Mark, now it's time for you to go on the offensive. Claiming that giant-sized counts is, uh, is, a, is an appropriate counter to uh, my claim that the annuals count. I mean, I think anything counts if you can make the joke giant-sized man thing about it, right? Oh, all right. Anyway, okay, <laughs> this, this, right. this episode is getting bad. <laughs> okay. All right. Welcome to the Amazing Spider Talk, everybody. The show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. Thanks, everybody, for joining us for a review episode of the Amazing Spider Talk. Today on the show, Dan and I are going to be discussing Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5, Number 61, Legacy Number 862, called Let's Try Something New, which is written by Nick Spencer, with art by Patrick Gleason, colors by Edgar Delgado, letters by VCs Joe Caramunga, and a cover by Patrick Gleason and Edgar Delgado. This issue was first released on March 10th, 2021, and Dan, let me be the first to say, thank goodness I got all those names right. <laughs> awesome, Mark. What's new? Well, you know, I think the title for this issue is actually really appropriate. Let's try something new. It reminds me of the Monty Python. And now for something completely different. And I feel like that was the <laughs> spirit of this issue. It opens with an image of Kindred. But if if that opening page wasn't really there, I think you'd be hard pressed to tie in this issue with what has been kind of dominating the book for the past, what, four or five months now? This really felt like something new or maybe even a return to something old, like the earlier issues in Nick Spencer's run. And um, I'm curious to see how you reacted to that, because I have my own thoughts about it as well. I'm of two minds of it. I mean, like, the, I, I certainly enjoyed it. And, and like you said, like, it kind of was a throwback to some of the earlier Spencer issues of which were... I, I felt the better issues of this run overall. I, I hesitate a little bit because, you know, I, I feel like we're, we're, we're going back 
to revisit some stories that were dropped in favor of Kindred. You know, with the, with Kindred being at the beginning, now granted it was kind of to be like, yeah, I've been through a lot lately because of this guy, but you know, we're we're, we're moving on today. Is the whole tone and shift of this uh, of this book uh, is the whole tone of this book going to shift again? When we need to go back to the kindred well, and and it, like you know, like I, I I still worry a little bit about getting kind of yo-yoed around with this book, but you know we're we're gonna kind of continue to to operate in a vacuum, I guess, <laughs> when we talk about these comics for a little bit, and I'll do, or at least I will, with some of this, <laughs> and so we can talk about some of the specifics here. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was joking. On a previous episode, in fact, I think it was the one that we just released into the the main podcast feed. You know, if you're listening to this now on on Patreon, you know, is that like, man, it would be really hard to have something like Kindred hanging over this book and suddenly switch back to lighthearted storytelling. You know, that's exactly what we got here. But but I do like that the book does address it at at the at the top, like. There is this thing, but I'm kind of in the need to like get that out of my mind and and get back to the kind of the the old fun. In this case, it's like someone's robbing the bank and I've got to go stop them. And, you know, if if I'm if I'm going to be honest, you know, it, it is like a kind of like a hard tone shift. But to me, it was like a nice palate cleanser. Like I, I didn't realize how much I mean, I guess I kind of did, but. Reading this, I, I was like, oh, man, I really needed something like this, like a good old classic, you know, Spider-Man story where he's beaten up on some robbers and dealing with his like social life and all the various things moving in and out of it. You know, it's not all perfect for me, but like the tone of it, I, I was at least like, this is what I needed after being mired in the muck for, for, for so something so long. And honestly, this is the book that I thought we would be getting from Spencer you know, when he was announced in the title, it's kind of like elevated superior foes. I think that's a fair assessment. And, and, and frankly, like I, it's it's funny, the, the, the main the two main stories that have kind of dominated this book for stretches have been hunted and then last remains. And, and both, frankly, were, were kind of mining the the, the themes and tones of. Um, some of the darker writers of of Spider-Man past, whether it be Jan DeMatteis or Peter David and like the 80s specifically with some elements of Last Remains. And, you know, not that those stories shouldn't be paid homage to. But, yeah, I, it, it, when you look at the, the, the history of Spencer's storytelling and where he's been at his strongest, it, it's frankly been more on the you know you think in terms of spider-man universe the superior foes kind of stories and yeah like overall the this book feels more organic and natural when it takes up that tone uh rather than trying to kind of be nick spencer doing an imitation of jmd and, and peter david i know he's not trying to just do an imitation, but like, it just, it doesn't sing the same way. And, and you know, like, so how are we, how we, how are we really going to move forward here when we know there's still kind of the, the 800 pound demonic gorilla in the room, but I, I, I guess we're going to try for at least a little bit. 
Yeah, and, and that's not to say that I don't like Spencer's more dark writing. I think, like, you and I are on the record of liking the last few issues, you know, quite a bit. I mean, I think issue 60 is probably one of the, like, darker nights of the soul for Peter Parker, you know, if you will, having him, like, literally crying on the pages of the book, you know. It is hard to reconcile that guy with this guy, but, you know, I, I appreciate the kind of, like, Peter Spider-Man always gets back up and, and puts himself back in the ring that this book kind of feels like it's like, well, things have been hard, but you know, I can find an escape in, in, in other aspects of my life. And you know, some, some of the stuff here really worked for me in terms of balancing that. Like I love this meeting with between Kingpin and all the kind of like gang Lords, you know, it's dark and there's a lot of like threat and menace going on here, but then there's also humor. Like, uh, when Kingpin says, like, I want you all to get boomerang and everybody says at the same time, I hate that guy. And, you know, that really worked for me. You know, that's the, that was a, a good laugh out loud joke. It's like, of course, they all hate boomerang, you know, whether that be from you know their memory of uh, superior foes or, or what have you. If Nick Spencer was to retire from comics tomorrow, his legacy on making Fred Meyer's boomerang into this compelling comedic slash semi tragic character, I think would, would be enough to, I would say, rest his laurels on. And of course he will do, you know, Spencer is doing more than that, but this book had a lot of, had a lot of boomerang in it. And, and <laughs> as a result, I, I found myself laughing, chuckling to myself, but also guffawing a little bit out loud as a result. And that line was certainly one of them. I, I know I kind of criticized the reveal of all of the mob bosses uh, in the last issue, but I, I kind of liked the interplay here and kind of getting getting little taste of everybody's personality and stakes. You know, Owl and Hammerhead kind of was it Hammerhead? I'm trying to remember now. It was yeah, Owl and yeah, Hammerhead, right? Hammerhead, yeah, yeah, kind of, kind of, you know, pushing down on each other and and like also like this was a good, I think, establishment of kind of like the status quo of, of Mayor Fisk and, and what it means for these characters. I mean, I'm, I'm not reading a lot of the other Marvel books where Fisk is a character, but, you know, this was kind of a good explainer for me as someone who's not as plugged into the, to what else is going on in relation to this. So I, I liked that it laid all that out. And I liked that, you know, a year after he almost ended the entire run of Amazing Spider-Man, we got some more Gog finally, right? <laughs> well, that's the hilarious thing you bring up. It has literally been a year since we saw Gog in this book. I guess we saw him sleeping at the foot of the, a bed in a panel, maybe. But like, man, what a, what a delay on following up to that story. Oh my God, a, a whole year. But yeah, I, I thought this was charming enough. The idea of Gog becoming an Instagram sensation it is a little weird to have some of like the larger than life supernatural superheroic stuff show up so immediately in Peter's life, like, and to be advertising it as such, like, hey, we've got an alien creature that lives in our bedroom. I'm still a little like, uh, uh, like, especially in that they're actively advertising it makes me a little bit weird. There, there are some things that don't add up there and. Yeah, it's somewhat, you know, considering Peter still 
seems to at least pretend to have some discretion about his identity and and whatnot. It, that that struck me as kind of weird. <laughs> but speaking of discretion, you know, the other big, of course, reveal of this issue is, and it relates to Peter's unemployment, but it's the new costume that he got from courtesy of the the threats and menaces team of. Nora Winters and J. Jonah Jameson. And Dan, I'm going to have to imagine you have thoughts about this costume. So I'm going to let you let you go at it here. Well, I mean, just first and foremost, I love that we're bringing Peter back into the fold with Jonah and 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 re, re, revisiting that story and making this more kind of like an essential part of what's going on in Peter's life. I love the line when he re-enters Threats and Menaces as Peter, where he's like, the one downside to having a secret identity is you get the tour twice. And to me, that's like that, that's a great like Peter moment in, in this book. And I, I so I, I really appreciated that. You know, but we get this new costume which we'd seen advertised, and I think the immediate reaction to this costume online was like fairly negative, would you say? I was on Twitter this week, but I didn't see a lot of the reaction to this. So I, you're, you're actually surprising me. So, so there was a lot of negativity, huh? Well, no, I mean back when it first debuted, like when they solicited oh, that there would be a oh, new I costume. Oh, I see. I see. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I, I, which I guess speaks volumes that, like, I, I didn't see a lot of like reactions this week to it. So the fact that it seemed kind of quiet, because that's the thing. I think in the context of this story. It all makes sense, you know, like like I, I think this is a very fun, unique way to bring in a new costume. And, and, and they do it in a way that we haven't seen in a real I don't think ever seen quite like this. But like certainly like it's not like Peter. I, I think it would have been different if, you know, Peter made this costume for himself. And, you know, like people would be like. I can see like why people would be negative. Like, what, what, what is this about? But now that like the reasoning behind it is clear, it's like, oh, of course, of course, it's going to kind of look a little tacky and be a little weird because this is this is a money making scheme <laughs> from by Jonah and Nora. <laughs> you know, like it, it's 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 total commercialism here. <laughs> well, there's almost like a meta commentary just in that, in that like costumes are a money making scheme. To, or have been a money-making scheme in the Spider-Man books over the years. Like, no better way to get people to buy your comic than to introduce a new costume. And here we're introducing a costume explicitly to make money off of it. I, I can't imagine that that's an accident. And speaking of more about a commentary, I mean, we can we can go back to our initial conversation with Tom DeFalco about the black costume where, you know, the initial pitch was like, it will make Spider-Man jump like 30% higher or whatever. And it's like, well, how do you show that in a comic? And that's kind of what you have with this suit here. It's like, well, his, he's stronger, he's faster. His, what his spider sense is augmented. There are new web shooters, but like, we don't really see what's better about this suit. Right. It's just kind of like, it's better because they're telling us it's better. (laughs) Yeah, that's like the one thing that I thought was lame. And I think you and I have complained about that in past with other suits where it's like, you know, I I would love for it to be more tangible. You know, if you think back to like, I mean, I guess I don't need Dicko to design exactly how the web shooters work, although I love that kind of stuff. You know, at least give me something a little bit more specific than like you unlock the power suit in a video game that gives you two bars more strength and one bar more agility. 
you know. Although I, I do love that the webbing sound isn't thwip, it's thweep. In my mind, that like is kind of like the sound of photography or like, like the click of a shutter. shutter. Yeah. yeah. And I thought that was really clever. In regards to the design, I'm curious what you think. I mean, it's growing on me. I think the image they used to introduce it in the solicitations was like, I think it's the covered in the next issue. I don't love, but Patrick Gleason made me like the design of the suit here. I'm still mixed on the color scheme of it. I thought it was fun within the pages of this book. I'm still not entirely sold, but... And when you actually see like the, the utility of the suit... It does make you wonder why can't it just be his suit? You know what I mean? Or, 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 or like, why not lean really into the commercialism of it and like, you know, just have it like have like the threats and menaces logo on it or something? You know what I mean? Like, like, kind of like just doing like an off-color spider suit doesn't make a ton of sense for me. Uh, also, you know, in in maybe this kind of ties into our first live episode of the season about Roger Stern, where I talked about questions that no one was asking. Well, I guess I'm asking the question right now, where did the suit come from, Dan? Because I don't think, uh, unless I, I missed the memo, I don't think Jonah and Nora Winters are making this tech in the back room, are they, at the at the podcast studio? <laughs> well, that, that's my big wonder. And, you know, but it's not really dangled out there like it's a mystery, right? It's just presented plain and, and cold. So I don't know whether I'm supposed to be asking that question or not. And, and I hope that I'm supposed to be asking that question because it definitely is a question I'm asking. I feel like I just tied myself into a loop there in that sentence. But I wonder if, you know, this particular color scheme has something to do with that because I can't figure out any good reason for it. Like you said, like, why not really lean into the threats and menaces of it all or into, you know, I, I could see them revisiting the kind of like Spidey suit from that what if where he's got a cape, right? Like if he's going to be a showman, why not lean into that a little bit? I don't know what sleek silver and glowy lights. Well, now that I'm saying it does sound pretty good. It's also kind of, it's kind of like a spin on the future foundation suit, frankly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, and, and it, yeah, because it's got the unstable molecules and, and all of that stuff. My immediate mind whenever it is dealing with Jonah is that like, he made some kind of deal with the devil in order to make this happen. You know, like the classic Jonah thing is like, right. He, he, he hires the scorpion and it backfires horribly on him. You know, my mind immediately in terms of this color scheme went to like spider slayer. Now, do I think Jonah would hire the spider slayer? Not in a million years, but like, you know, my brain already went to like, well, that's a character we haven't seen forever because he's dead. Who knows? Like who who would build something that would look like this? And and that's where my mind went. And I don't know. I don't have any meat behind that, but that's where my mind goes, at least. <laughs> Anything else about this subplot that, that came out came out to you? I mean, what did you think about Spider-Man selling well not me undies, but <laughs> essentially <laughs> I mean like the meta the meta's off the charts here. I mean, which is also kind of like Nick Spencer at his best, but, you know, also kind of like, is this really appropriate in the Spider-Man book? You know what I mean? Like, like it's at his best, but like, I don't know, like a lot, a lot of meta, like so much meta here. <laughs> it is really silly. And I think I had expressed it. Like, I don't know how to land on like the pop culture references and stuff like that. in books. it's always been a part 
of Spider-Man comics. But I remember when there was like the super, when he was like the superhero that was like swinging people around the city, like their own Uber. And I was just like, I don't really buy that necessarily, but whatever. I thought this was more organic. Like I could see Peter who we've long talked about him not having any way of making money, getting caught up in something that, you know, it it feels like a situation Peter might find himself in. I mean, the thing that I like most about this beyond the suit element is the dramatic potential of it. The idea that, you know, there's that like spider Island thing of like everyone got to be Spider-Man. Right. And, and, and they're playing into that theme here too, which is like everybody gets to observe what it's like to be Spider-Man. And then to have Jonah just kind of like, it's a backseat driver commenting on everything and putting lines in his mouth. There's a whole other like kind of meta commentary, which is like, Fans of Spider-Man, you know, telling Spider-Man how he should actually act or behave or whatever, you know, our backseat drivers is a kind of thing that I'm always worried about. Uh, you and I being on this show is like, well, I'd be better if he said this or that or the other thing. And here people actually are given that ability to do to do that and get Spider-Man to say the things that they they want. I think there's so much potential for Jonah getting like a front row seat to everything Spider-Man's doing and being the guy that gets to like edit what goes out to the public. I mean, this is going to immediately backfire. Can we agree on that? Oh, 100%. <laughs> I mean, this gets to like the whole like, well, what if Spider-Man causes property damage? Like, are they do they get to sue threats and menaces now? Like, where where does this all go? Like, this is not going to a good place and Anytime something's not going to a good place, I'm on board because that's a Spider-Man comic to me. <laughs> what did you think of Robbie's kind of response to, to you know, Robbie, Robbie seems to be the, the voice of the conscious of the world, of the, the moral center yet again, you know, like we're going to we're going to do journalism the old way. But, you know, it does make me wonder if if. Yeah, you know, we we would say Robbie's a dying breed, but also like you know his former journalism, frankly, is dying. <laughs> so I, I you know like uh, part of me, part of me kind of felt pity for Robbie here because it was like, oh man, you you are about to eat your lunch, and I don't know if you you know it yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's something I'll be very curious to see how it plays out. Just like over the next decade, is like as the New York Times and and print like and real journalism loses its foothold how that's reflected in the pages of this book with the Daily Bugle. Like it's the kind of the weird thing about like Hell's Kitchen in the Marvel Universe where it's like, oh, gritty and dirty Hell's Kitchen, you know, where your apartments cost $3,000 a month to rent, you know, um, in real real world New York. Where there's a Starbucks in every corner. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, I thought that this was a nice note that like he's still kind of on a tie horse, which... Is appropriate. And then, you know, I guess you could say it's kind of like using the paper for his own purposes. He, of course, is directing the paper to invest, investigate Tombstone and his daughter, who he doesn't know is currently dating his son, Randy, who, you know, speaking of which just happens to show up at at an appropriate time. And I know we're getting a, um, a Robbie Tombstone story coming down the pike and Tombstone was even featured in this issue. So I'm curious to see how that kind of all weaves throughout this. And it might be a good time to go revisit those old spectacular issues. Always a great read. And, 
you know, friend of the show, Jerry Conway, his his self-professed favorite story, I think he wrote. So, you know, at least in the in the newer era. But yeah, very, very opportune time. Like, hey, son, I haven't seen you in forever. (laughs) (laughs) Just as I'm about to launch this investigation into your uh, the girlfriend. I don't know you have. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So then then we return to Kingpin. I think the question we were all asking is like, what is Silvermane going to do in this instance? He's just a head on a table. And I still don't know that I have an answer for that, but his head does <laughs> push back quite aggressively against Kingpin and Kingpin offers his get out of jail free card. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was kind of silly, like especially for villains who are in and out of jail constantly. <laughs> it felt a little too clumsy from him. You know what I mean? Like why, why, you know, like this is one of the most powerful men in the Mar- Marvel universe. Why is he literally offering a card that, it seemed a little too cute for me. Yeah, especially the logo on it with like, what was it like um, Iron Man blasting out of like a prison or something? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was a little silly, but I mean, it's fine. So we come back to Spider-Man and he's been kind of like fighting this squad of villains that are kind of like mostly superior foes. You've got like Shocker, who I hope stays active in this story. And we address the why he's not the head of the Magia still. Like Hydro Man, Silvermane in his bowling bag or something, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But when Spider-Man defeats them, he discovers, oh no, they were just the distraction, and they are calling themselves the Boomerang Revenge Squad. Which, of course, <laughs> that was—I don't know—I thought that was very appropriate, and I, I got a good laugh out of that. And it's a distraction because Kingpin knows how to get to Boomerang's heart. And apparently that is through Gog. And uh, Mark, I'm just going to say it. I This didn't really work for me as a cliffhanger because I don't really care about Gog. I mean, they made me care about him, but it's been a year since we've seen Gog. So like the level of uh, emotional investment I put into that ending is not as high as I think they want it to be. Seeing a sniper scope over poor innocent Gog, you know. It gets put shivers down my spine, but no, I mean, you know, I, Hey, we just, we just got a dog this summer. Right? We love dogs. I love pets. I mean, you know, the, the, the bond a human has with their pet. We are, we are, we are literally reintroducing a character we haven't seen in 12 months to, to create drama. You kind of have to see through that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's the like, Hey, remember this guy? Now he's going to die. You know, I, I don't really buy that. It's like when we start getting Gibbon and you're like, well, what's going to happen to Gibbon? <laughs> <laughs> I also like, I don't know how I, like, I mean, it's not, he's not an actual dog, but I do feel like for as bad as Kingpin is, I feel like he wouldn't hire a sniper to shoot someone's dog. I just feel like that might be a little beneath the Kingpin. I mean, he hired a sniper to shoot someone's aunt. So who, who am I to say one way or the other? So, Patrick Gleason, your thoughts great. on Patrick Gleason here? This issue works in large part because Gleason's great throughout. I mean, I, and, and I shouldn't say that, like, the writing isn't any good, but you know what I mean? Like, it's, I mean, as much as I loved all the Mark Bagley we've been getting lately, like, Gleason, Gleason's kind of in another league right now. Uh, I love seeing his stuff in this book. He just really captures heroic stuff well, but also, like, the out of costume stuff. Well, I mean, everything seems to be clicking with Gleason. 
Yeah, I agree. And I actually thought that this was like a real step forward for him in terms of out of costume stuff. I felt like his Peter kind of like really kind of felt more like solidly placed. I mean, he's a different interpretation of the character than we've seen. It's a little more like like bold. It's more cartoony. In many ways, it kind of reminds me of the more romantic Ramita Sr. stuff. I mean, not not in any way like into the same way or whatever, but it's a kind of more square jawed Peter Parker, but um, this felt more recognizable to me, and uh, I I enjoyed seeing like his kingpin is is frightening. You know, he's just got a real good grasp on all these characters, and it, it it felt like a comfortable place for him. And you're right, he made the costume look really cool. And anytime Spider Man's fighting, the the pages are just full of detail, like the Hydro Man water splashing as Spider Man punches his way through it was beautiful. So yeah, I mean, that's Amazing Spider-Man 61. I'm going to ask you one more question before we give our grades. You know, I think this is a really funny book and it and the humor is very playful. I think in terms of my grade, one thing that I'm really waffling on is like things like the Me Undies stuff. I can't say why really it, it, like some of that stuff sends up a red flag to me. Like it's maybe like too jokey like too extra for the grounded world of Spider-Man. Do do you feel that way at all? Or like, you know, is it just maybe more that it's like a bit of hard tonal shift? I don't completely disagree with you. And like, I mean, my, my issue is more like you said a few minutes ago, pop culture references are not new to this book. You know, there's a difference, I think, between Stan Lee making a joke about like George Burns or something and and like like some of this stuff that's coming up here is so clearly going to be of this moment and this moment alone in time that it's not even like two or three years from now, but like six months from now, some of this stuff is just going to feel so dated and and to me that's that's a risky proposition to be bringing into your comic it's like like if you're going to make a reference make sure it's a reference that has staying power so that you can go back it reminds me during superior when dan slot started quoting community and crazy town banana pants you know and it was just like ah you know like that 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 is an expression that only hard, you know, I know it because I love community, you know what I mean? <laughs> but like, it's just like, it's so specific of that moment that like, no one is going to know what the hell they were talking about when, it, so like, I, I just feel like, I mean, maybe some of this like, you know, podcast advertising stuff will, will have, has some same power, but like, you know, like, like this or a joke about Squarespace or whatever. Like, like this is going to be such a pe- flash in the pan when it's all said and done. And I think like if you're going to use those bullets, like use them for things that clearly are going to last, you know, like there, there, there are plenty of things in our zeitgeist right now that are not going to be like little literal, like there and gone in 10 minutes. And, and I feel like this comic kind of situates itself on a lot of those flash in the pans. And, and that's unfortunate for me. The me undies thing didn't seem as egregious to me as like in the pages of nonstop Spider-Man where we got a Bridgerton reference, 
which I'm like, how did they even do that? Like that show literally came out like a week ago. I don't know when they printed that comic. It's kind of amazing, especially considering that comic was delayed like a year. That felt like, I mean, Bridgerton will be here and gone more than me undies. I think for me, it's like the, the kingpin flipping out like a get out of jail free card. It's just too silly for the gravity of that character. But it didn't bother me so much. Uh, but I just thought it worth bringing up because I know that Nick is on the sillier side. So, okay, let's get to grades. Mark, do you want to go first today? Sure. I'm, I'm going to give this a B minus because I, I, I think that there was a lot to like here, but also kind of a lot of frivolity. And, you know, again, fool me once, shame on me, whatever. But like, I just want to make sure that, you know, like this break in tone is not going to be pulled out from underneath me again in, in two months time again. And I'm going to give this a, a solid B. I thought this was a really strong start to an arc. I'm eager to see where all these kind of dominoes fall. I think there's a lot of good setup here. And I had a lot of fun with it. This is just a good classic, classically told Spider-Man story. I'm ready for the villains to kind of make their more grand appearance. I mean, there's a meeting with a bunch of villains, but I haven't seen how the antagonists are going to play out yet. And that will be really where this kind of gets decided for me. I think in terms of setup, like, you know, I've said this many times before, so we'll see what ends up happening. But I, uh, this was a really solid start to a new storyline. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, Dan, of course, it is that time. Time for all good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning in to this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. This episode was edited by Rick Coast with production support from Andy Myers. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friends, Sal Busema, and Ray Sumzer. Our theme songs were produced by Rylan Bojack, Tony Thaxton, and Spider Madge. This episode was originally released on Patreon as a live stream hangout with us back when the comic was first released. So if you'd like to help support our show's continued existence and these reviews while joining us on the live stream, why not head on over to our Patreon and sign up? So, Mark, until I convince you to live stream your entire life, what's our motto? <laughs> oh, man. I fear for that day. Our motto is, with great podcasts, there must also come the amazing spider talk. Don't, don't miss the next installment.